Thank you for listening to the Redemption Church Podcast. information about Redemption Church, please visit redemptionokc.com. You can stay up to date on sermons by subscribing to our podcast on iTunes. Thanks again for listening. Easter is a wonderful celebration that really takes place all around the world, and we're united with our brothers and sisters in every uh, country around the world where people are united to sing uh, really in praise and worship of Christ who died and Christ who has risen. Uh, man, we get some bad news today that there was a bombing in Sri Lanka, and there's people that have suffered over there that are really being persecuted for their faith. And so, and we're united with them. But Easter is a time where we celebrate that, um, but we also grieve with those who are grieving. And that's part of the, this thing called the body of Christ, this family of worship that we have. And uh, the scriptures tell us that we are to proclaim the excellencies of Him who calls us out of darkness into His marvelous light. And Easter, we run quickly to the light of the resurrection, as we should, but I think it's important not to run past that too quickly. I think sometimes the best way we can see the light is to contrast that with the darkness. Sometimes the best way we can experience what it means for us to be a part of the family of God is to realize what it is to be alone, and sometimes the best thing for us to do to realize what it is to have mercy is to remember what it's like to be without mercy. And and everyone walks in here today with a story, and you need to know that your story matters that your story matters to us and your story matters to God. Your life is not arbitrary or accidental. All the dreams and desires, the wants and the wishes that you have locked up inside, all the hurts and the habits and the wounds and the wanderings of your journey matter to the God of the universe. But they also cry out for expression. They cry out for resolution. They cry out to be made new. They cry out for a joyful end and The reality is we can't fix these things on our own. We can't bring those things to a joyful resolution in our own strength and in our own power. And much of the time, what we find ourselves doing is staying very busy, running from thing to thing and task to task, keeping our day timers as full as we can so that we don't have to stop and think about this stuff. But every now and then, there's a moment where we stop and we reflect and we just contemplate kind of the trajectory of our lives, where we've been, where we're going. And maybe today is the day where you need to do that for yourself. When God created the world, he said in Genesis chapter one and two, that it is good. He said it six times that everything made was good. When he got to humanity, he said, it's very good for they are made in my image. Says that we were naked and not ashamed. That there was no fear, no worry, no, uh, nothing to hide, nothing to, to run from, nothing to try to fix. But there was, oh, there was ultimately freedom in the human race. But then the very next chapter in Genesis chapter 3, an evil one begins to whisper and we begin to listen. And that brings about what Christians know or, or call as the fall. That we fell from God's design. We fell from God's intention. We fell from our relationship with the Lord. And at that moment, something broke inside the human race. And it said that shame entered the world. And the very next thing we see is that, that Adam and Eve are hiding. And God comes and he says, where are you to Adam and Eve? And it's a great question. He wasn't just physically wondering to know where they are. He wanted to know, 
where are you? What is your life founded upon? Do you have an identity that's connected to something outside of yourself? Do you really know who you are? And it was that moment that we saw humanity begin to try to fix things on their own. Adam and Eve are covered in fig leaves and they're hiding from the Lord. They're trying to find their own way in order to navigate this thing called life. And in that, they just create more trouble. It's then when we began to run and we've been running ever since, trying to make life work on our own terms. That's the message of the scriptures and what we see. If you have a Bible, would you look at Luke chapter 15? We're gonna look at another story today and we're gonna look at a story that Jesus told. And it's a story Jesus told about two brothers, two brothers that ran. They were were running through life, trying to make their own way. And they ran in two very different ways. You had a younger brother, we sometimes call the prodigal, and he was running in order to to escape and find enjoyment. Then you had an older brother, uh, the firstborn, who who was running in order to achieve and strive to be good. And so we're gonna look at the story of Jesus in Luke chapter 15. It starts in verse six, or I'm sorry, verse 11. And Jesus said, there was a man who had two sons and the younger of them said to the father, father, give me my share of the property that is coming to me. And he divided the property between them. Not many days later, the young son gathered all that he had and he took a journey into a far country. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in the country and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who sent him into his fields to feed the pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate and no one gave him anything. The younger son says to his father, give me what's coming to me. I want my inheritance now. And he takes the the father's money, heads to Vegas or maybe LA, but definitely somewhere out West, uh, definitely somewhere where he could get into some trouble. And he's looking for a place where he can have as much fun as he can. And he Instagrams the whole thing or Snapchats the whole thing. So his family knows exactly what he's up to and what's going on. And as he's recording this track or this trek across the country, the trajectory of his life is headed in a certain direction. And it's not hard to imagine where it ends, but eventually he blows his, the, entire, uh, the entire inheritance on frivolous and fun things, having a good time. That was his, that was his entire plan. And I'm gonna go fulfill every wish and dream I have. And I've got all these resources to throw into this effort. And so I'm gonna run after it with everything I've got. And as he does, eventually things turn bad and he hits bottom, which isn't really hard to predict, is it? that eventually that's where he's headed. And the turning point of the story though begins in verse 17. It says, but when he came to himself, I think this is an interesting phrase because in our culture and in our day, we we talk so much about self-fulfillment in life. People tend to think if I run off and throw off the shackles of society, if I throw off the burdens of morality, if I throw off all these things that restrict me and I run uh, full, full force into whatever it is my heart desires to do, then I'm gonna find fulfillment. I'm gonna find my identity. I'm gonna find my true self if I'm truly free of all those things. And so we, this, is, this is the path of self-fulfillment. And we decide, uh, each of us, how we're gonna to fill in the blank. If you look at the statement on the screen, it says, if I blank, then I will blank. If I, and you fill in the blank with whatever it is you want to do, then I will receive whatever fulfillment I want. And we all fill in the blanks in our own way. We, we all seek to find fulfillment 
in our own way. We may answer the question and say, if, if I'm able to, to run in this direction, I will live the life I want, or I will have the friends I want. I will have the fun I want. I'll have the freedom that I want. I will have the creativity I want, or I'll have the identity I want. If I just get this one thing, I'll find the fulfillment that my heart needs for me to find my true self. But you see, in the story, it doesn't really work that way, does it? He doesn't find himself. He actually loses himself. And what you see here is the exact opposite of oftentimes what we're told. Rather than self-discovery, we find ourselves in self-loathing or in a place of self-pain. Do you notice he says he finally came to himself. He realized how life is broke, how broken his life was. And so often that realization comes through our suffering, comes through our loneliness, comes through some crisis or something that bubbles up in our life that pushes on, on us in a way that gets our attention. Maybe we feel exhausted or stuck. Maybe we feel like we're, we can't outrun our past or our family history. Maybe we've been running after all these things and we just get to the end and it still feels empty. And we go, you know, it didn't deliver what it promised to deliver. And so we feel empty. Maybe even natural circumstances come our way that help get our attention. You notice in this story, it says a famine came. And so as he's running on this way, he may be able to glean from the fields and do all these other things, but when a famine outside circumstances even pile up against him in order to get his attention and tell him he can't solve his own problems and this is not enough. And you know, humility comes when we realize that the pain of going home is less than the pain of staying away. And humility comes when we realize that, 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 that the change we need is gonna be less painful than not changing anymore. And so he gets his attention and it says he came to himself. Let's read verses 17 and continue in the story. It says, but when he came to himself, he said, how many of my father's hired hands have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger. He's like, I'm dying here. And my dad's servants and slaves have so much more than I am. What am I doing with my life? I will arise and go home to my father and I will say to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. You notice he names the problem, doesn't he? He says, I have sinned. He acknowledges exactly what it is. You know, sin is not just getting caught with a hand in the cookie jar. Sin is relational at its core. Sin, sin it, it disrupts something in us. It disrupts something in those around us. And it disrupts something in our relationship with God. And so when you think about sin, I think there's three big categories that's important for us to think about. First, our sin hurts us. That there are consequences and circumstances that come our way because we make poor choices that eventually do damage to us. They do damage to us circumstantially and externally but they also do damage to us internally in terms of our emotional health and our well-being. That they break up something in here and cause a disruption within us. But our sin also hurts those who are closest to us. And we bring hurt and hardship to those who are around us. Oftentimes our sin hurts those we love the most. And whenever we do wrong, and it somehow doesn't stay contained within our skin, but it drips out on all those around us and hurts them as well, but sin also hurts our relationship with God. Sin is, ultimately, it's rebellion against God. It's taken the God who made us and created us and gifted us with life, and it's turning our back on him and saying, I think I can do better. And so there's a rebellion that's a part of sin. Because sin infects our entire person, sin isn't something we can just say, 
I'm sorry, I made a mistake. I'm gonna course correct and try and do better because that doesn't really get to the core of the problem. It's not really enough. We don't just need some new behaviors. We really need a new life, which is why the words for what we need to do with our sin when you look in the scriptures are words like confession. It just confesses as he did, I have sinned against you and against God. It's repentance. It's I need to give up my life and turn around and find a new life. I need to experience a resurrection of a new, of a new life and a new day. And so you look at what the, the younger son, the prodigal here says, and he's saying, I have sinned. I have no ground to stand on. I have no righteousness of my own. I'm gonna go home to my father and just seek mercy. I'm no, I'm no longer worthy to be called a son, but I'm gonna come and ask just for his, his merciful care of my life. I think it's important for us to realize that's what repentance really looks like. And you can almost hear him as he goes home rehearsing his speech, can't you? You think of the embarrassment of you had, you, you had everything. You took your inheritance to dad, give me everything now. I'm gonna run off and go have some fun. And then you're coming home humiliated, embarrassed, anxious. And, and you can hear his rehearsing of his speech to his father. What is it I'm gonna say? And make sure he has the right words and make sure he has everything down just right. And in verse 20, we see he arose and he came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion. And he ran and he embraced him and he kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you, I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, bring quickly the best robe and put it on him. Bring a ring and put it on his hand, shoes on his feet and bring the fatted calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate. For this, my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found and they began to celebrate. And what happens is not, I think, what the son expected to happen in this story. I think he expected to have to grovel at, the, at his father's feet, to have to apologize, to feel guilt and to shame. And yet while he was a long ways off, what does it say happens? His father looked out and saw him. And his father hurled himself off the steps of the porch and ran down the path and embraced his son and kissed him and wrapped himself around him and began to rejoice because his son was home. That who's lost has been found, who is dead is alive. This is, I think, what happens here. Have you ever seen an old man run? Like this is crazy, unfettered kind of love. It's, it's a lot of work to convince an old man to run. But when he sees his son, whom he had given up as dead, coming back down the path, he hurls himself in his direction, runs as fast as he can go, and throws his arms around him in a great big bear hug, welcoming him home. You know, so he says, bring a robe and put it on him. He's saying, cover up his shame with something beautiful. Take a ring and put it on his finger. A ring was a symbol of family. He's saying, you and I are connected. You're my son. The ring of our family belongs to you. You no longer have to hide. You, you say you're unworthy to be my son. Put the ring on that says you're mine. It says he put shoes on his feet. He had been walking barefoot all this way home. So there's that which is painful. And the father says, let me comfort and care for your needs. Let me meet you where you are and take care of those physical needs that you have. And he says, kill the fatted calf. Let's throw a party. Let's have a feast and invite everyone we know to come home and to celebrate the return of my son who is dead and is now alive. This is a resurrection. 
This is a new beginning. This is, uh, this is something that's exciting for this family to enjoy. And so they begin to celebrate. The DJ comes in and starts spinning some tunes and the music, the house lights come up and the music comes on. And they're getting ready to throw the party. The smell of the feast is there. They're inviting everyone in. They're sending runners out to get all the neighbors and family members to come home. This is what grace looks like, Jesus says. This is what the love of, the hev- of your heavenly father looks like. That when you come home, He invites you by running to you, embracing you, taking care of your every need and throwing you a party. This is grace. And Jesus said, this is what God's love is like. But it's not the end of the story, is it? There's an older son. If you look in verse uh, 25, it says, now his older son was in the field and he came and drew near to the house and heard music and dancing. And he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, your brother has come and your father has killed the fatted calf. But he was angry and refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him, but he answered his father and said, look, all these many years I've served you. I've never disobeyed your command, yet you never gave me even a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came home, who has devoured your property with prostitutes. You killed the fatted calf for him. And the father said to the son, son, you're always with me and all that is mine is yours. But it is fitting that we celebrate and be glad. For this was your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and he's found. And it's interesting thinking of this older brother. He hears music. It tells you something about him, right? He hears music as he's not even very far away. And it says, whoa, <laughs> what's going on? Someone's having a little too much fun out there. I'm not sure I want to go home. So he doesn't run home and go, hey, what's the party about? He stays back and sends someone else home and says, hey, go find out what's going on in there. And so the servant comes out and tells him, well, they're throwing a big party because your brother is home. And what is his response? He says he was filled with anger and bitterness. And so he stayed out. And I love that the father comes out to the older son too. Remember the father, the father ran out to the younger son when he came home, had compassion on him. See, I, my tendency as a father would have been, man, this son's, son's been gone for so long. I'm not leaving his side. I'm staying here and treasuring this one son. But the father, the love of this father is big enough for both sons. And so just as he went out to the younger son, he now goes out to the older son and he invites him in as well and says, son, come in, your brother is home. And the older son, though, states his, case in a different way. You know, what's interesting is the younger son, it was easy to see his sin, right? I mean, he ran away to the far, the far country. He, 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 you know, did all kinds of frivolous and, and, and wild things. And he threw off his moral shackles and kind of sowed his wild oats and had a good time. And everyone can look at that and go, well, that guy was clearly in the wrong. But the older brother, his sin was harder to see. His sin didn't look like sin to many of the people around. In fact, it didn't look like sin to him. And the danger here is that while the younger son physically went far away and the older son stayed close, the the older son's heart was far away, even though he's close proximity to the father. Even though he was physically nearby, his heart had distanced from the father a great deal and no longer cared about the same things. You notice he treated character like an accountant where he's like good, good, good behavior credit, bad behavior debit, and he's, he's, he's tallying everything that everyone does. He's got a spreadsheet where he's just going, you did good, you did good, you did bad, you did bad, and he's keeping tally so that he can do what? He can compare himself to others and go, you know what, I measure up pretty well. 
I think I did, but I think, I think I look a little bit better than those who are around me. That's what he says. He says, these many years I've served you. What he's saying is, look at all the good things I've done. Look at all the good works I've done. Look at all the ways in which I did the things you wanted, Father. And he says, I've never disobeyed you. What he's saying is, look how little bad stuff I've done. I've done all this good stuff. I haven't done very much bad stuff. Then surely I should be your favorite son. And he's comparing himself to others. Now it is interesting. The father in this exact instance says, son, come in. And he says, what? No, pretty sure that's disobedience. But he somehow skips over that and runs to all his list of stuff that he sees and how he sees it. But you notice how pride also makes, and self-righteousness can also make us critical of others. He says, not my brother's come home. He says, look, this son of yours has come home. There's a distancing there relationally because his self-righteousness and his pride elevates him and makes him look down upon his younger brother. He says, look at all the bad that guy did. He goes, do you need a list? Because he ran around with prostitutes. I've got a list of all the bad stuff he did too. I mean, isn't self-righteousness ugly? This kind of pharisaical pride that Jesus is really in this story writing it and aiming it at the pharisaical pride-like self-righteous people in this deal. In fact, it says at, before this story takes place at the very beginning of Luke chapter 15, it says that Jesus, that, that the sinners and tax collectors are drawn to Jesus. They want to be, be with him. And the religious leaders and the self-righteous Pharisees come and they say, look, why is he supping? Why is he eating and sharing a meal with all these sinners? And Jesus, because of their response, says he begins to tell them this story. This story is a direct rebuttal of prideful self-righteousness and the sin that's there. See, this son wasn't, wasn't upset because he lacked anything he needed. He just had a compulsive desire to be recognized as good. He had a compulsiveness that said, I want everyone to see all the right that I've done and give me credit. Um, he, he is a, a self, kind of self-made, self-respected, independent man who says, I can stand on my own merits. And it's interesting, the father reaches out to him and says, son, all that I have is yours. I'm not withholding anything from you. But at the end of the day, grace always wins. He says, it is fitting that we celebrate. It's right that we celebrate, meaning I'm not gonna allow your pride and self-righteousness to dampen the party but I'm gonna invite, I will invite you in, but you have to come in like everyone else. You have to come in by grace and come in to celebrate, not holding on to your own merits. Friends, real, j, real grace always leads to profound joy. It always does. When you understand grace that invites you in, apart from your own merits, but surely out of the love of the Father, it always produces deep joy in us. And the father in the story that Jesus told says, I'm not gonna allow anything to derail me from celebrating the party and the grace that I came to give. So what is the point of Jesus' story? What's he trying to get at? What he says here is, and there's a lot of reasons why we run away from God. Sometimes we run, we run from God in order to be seen. Sometimes we run from God in order to feel something. Sometimes we run from God in order to stop feeling something. Sometimes we run in order to escape. Sometimes we run in order to achieve. Sometimes we run in order to impress others. Sometimes we run in order to avoid others. We run in order to be good, to find acceptance. There's all kinds of reasons why we run. But the thing we need to see today is that our running will never lead us to God's grace. That eventually we have to come home. And God's grace is God's love given freely to those who have done nothing for it. To those who, grace is something we simply receive. It's not something we can achieve or earn or deserve. It's a gift. 
and it will come to us in no other way. In fact, what we see in life and we see in the scriptures is the, the harder we run after God's favor on our own, the more it disappears. But when we surrender to the lordship and the love of our heavenly father, I mean, our, the grace comes to us not holding anything back. The younger son brought nothing at all and yet he received a, a true identity. He received a true provision. He received a true covering. He re received a, a true invitation into the house of the father to full restoration. The older son in his pride refused to come in and he lost everything he already had. Jesus said that he who loses his life will find it, but those who seek to save everything in their life will lose it. It's because of grace. Grace is the thing that makes all the difference. And this grace mindset really is the foundation of the Christian life that we have to understand that you can't make your own way, that you can't earn your own way. You can't earn God's favor through your performance. You can't earn God's favor through, through, uh, through uh, or his acceptance, through uh, your, your ability to do all the right things or to follow all the religious rules or to do all those things. But ultimately, we all come in like the prodigal and just say, I have sinned against you and against God and I have nothing. No, no grounds to stand on my own, but I'm here and I'd like to come in if you'd let me. This is the story that Jesus told of what the love of the Father is like and what grace really is like. And this mindset really is, it's the gasoline or fuel that moves the Christian life. That if we, if we lose grace, we lose everything and have no ability to move forward in our journey. You know, sometimes a redemption story is the best way to show off God's grace. And so and we wanna share with you a story today that puts a face on God's grace. And my hope for you as you listen in on this story is that you lean in and that you really consider how God's story and how this story connect the dots with your story as an individual. This is Paul. You may have seen him around here at church. Maybe you've seen him on stage playing guitar. Last Sunday, Paul led us in worship for the first time. He's married to Megan, and he's the father of three great kids, Paul Jr., Joe, and John. But Paul's story didn't start here. In fact, Paul says it's a miracle that he's here at all. Without the bulk of them, city streets shoved on my feet. Man, I've been trying to make a rhythm of a concrete beat. I'm kind of thinking now it's all in my mind. So I'm trying to figure ways to turn myself up from the inside. Lonely planet, man, world of despair. Here's the secrets that we're keeping now, they double the pair. So I fall back in a slow decline as I ponder the walking of a straight line. Paul grew up in a broken home. His parents split up when he was three. He and his three sisters would bounce back and forth between living with mom and living with dad. His mom attended a wild, shouting kind of church in Southern California. And Paul's dad was an angry ex-Catholic turned atheist. But what mom and dad shared in common was that they were both unhealthy. 
Paul says he doesn't have many good memories from his childhood. Because of his parents' unhealth, his three sisters were placed in group homes. And by 14, Paul was on the same trajectory. And at that time, Paul began to run. Uh, probation. I think I was on probation at the time for some of the trouble I got into. My mom was talking to them about a program that's called making you the lord of the court, and that's kind of where you give up custody of your kid to the to the freaking court, and you go get locked up in a group home. And all three of my sisters, that's what happened to them. They ended up in group homes. My mom was going to start on that for me, and uh, we started talking about that. And uh, finally, I, I just I, I just didn't come home. Paul ran for a long time. He ran from house to house on the couch tour of homes of older friends who let him sleep on the sofa. He ran from school, never really finishing high school and having to later get his GED. He ran to alcohol, to weed, to crystal meth. And somehow, by the help of some friends, he managed to get his pilot's license, which was a healthier escape. But even flying became a way to keep running. He ran from job to job and place to place hopping on a plane to run to whatever landing strip he could find. But all that running wasn't really getting him anywhere. Here's how Paul described it. And I had the credit card and the keys to like jets take me all over the place. And I'm flying with a whole bunch of other dudes who were my age and we are, we just, we'd bebop in different towns and different cities and we would run loose with the company cars or running up taps and party and essentially living like rock stars a little bit, you know? Megan was chasing me around trying to keep up with me and following me a little bit on these tankers. So she'd drive out with Paul. She wasn't working at the time. You know, she didn't work since Paul. And, um, you know, but, but, but basically I'm, I'm gone and, and, and the distance grew from us. And dude, it kind of got to the point, man, like where I started forgetting that I was married. Wow. And it was like fly all day and drink all night and fly all day and drink all night. And, and, and then they didn't invite me to come back. And all of a sudden I'm home. And at this time, Joe's being born and I'm, and I'm home, dude. And my wife is home. And like Megan was having issues with her drinking a little bit at the time too because she, she wasn't happy. She was miserable. Of course she's not happy, dude. Her husband is gallivanting and, and with with it was it was a dark place dude it just was it was a bad place and dude i was out of work for like almost two years and what i was doing is that we were ringing up credit cards man we went we went broke man bad bad and um it was rough dude rough and dark and i remember at one point man i remember like in this rocking chair paul's you know three Joe's newborn, and I remember Rock and Joe, and I remember in the rocking chair, dude. I remember like just coming to tears because I just was so like miserable with a who I've become, and our situation was so bad. And I just, I just ran us to the freaking ground, man. I just ran us to the ground, and me and Megs were just at a not at a good spot, dude. She wasn't happy with me, and I, I, I can't believe she didn't leave me back then, man. And I just was wasn't healthy you know wasn't that wasn't healthy and i remember rocking joe in this rocking chair man and i remember like just kind of coming to tears i remember and i, and I think that's when i just i started praying mm -hmm. i started praying you know yeah. and um mm -hmm. 
you know, I'm home now. I'm not out finding fire. I'm, I'm just home. I'm at home to like just deal with all this and face all this. And we started going to church. We started going to church, man. And that was kind of where it started with with. I think there was a seed always planted in me mm. since I from childhood because yeah. I was saved when I was nine, you know. Yeah. Um, but it was like every other weekend visiting my mom at this little youth thing on the beach, wherever you know. So it wasn't isn't mean yeah. a lot, but it was there. And I, I think God brought me up, and I think I just needed to be ran into the ground. Just I needed a rock bottom, dude. I needed to ride. I needed I needed a baseball bat to the kneecaps to drop me, mm-hmm. and just and, and like sore start from scratch, man. So that's kind of when we started attending church sparsely, um, but slowly it just started evolving, started evolving. Yeah. And um, I'm sorry, man. I just get emotional. It just made me think of like the the scripture where Jesus says like unless a seed falls to the ground and it's crushed. Like, there won't be life, you know? And Jesus modeled that for us, but, like, we all have that story, too, you know? Yeah. Where uh, there was a seed planted in us, and, and it kind of has to get crushed and, and put into the ground before oh, real life can come out of it. Paul still feels like he wants to run sometimes. Things aren't perfect, but he's learning more and more to walk by faith and to trust in God's grace. Spiritually, he's alive. And things are different. As he and his family have found a place to connect in church and grow spiritually, Paul now sees God's hand in his life and how differently things could have turned out. He says, quote, I could not have made up this story myself. I should be dead or a junkie on a street corner. Not what I am now. I've been made alive. celebrate Paul's story? It is fitting to celebrate and be glad for the son who was lost has been found. One who was dead is alive. And Paul's story is a picture of God's grace. Grace that we all need. Friends, where are you? Where's your story? Do you know that grace? Are you still running? 
And Paul learned an important lesson that's foundational to the spirit, to the Christian life. Romans 6.23 says, For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. A wage is a payment. See, every time we run our own way, it leads to darkness. But there's a free gift called grace. That Jesus earned for us on the cross and achieved for us through the resurrection. And it allows us to come home to make him our savior and our Lord, our rescuer and our king, and to give our lives to him and surrender. It's nothing we can earn. It's something we just receive as a gift that comes freely. There's two mistakes I think you could make today. One is thinking you're too bad or broken to receive God's grace. The other is thinking you're too good or too smart to need God's grace. Both of those are ditches on either side of the road that will get you in trouble. You know, the longer I live, the more I realize that grace is not something that we can just intellectually wrap our brains around, but it's something we have to experience. And sometimes with my kids, I, I have to get down and now they're, I don't get down as much because they're getting bigger. So, but they still need me to do this sometimes. But there's times when I need to grab their face and just say, listen to me and make eye contact and to make sure they hear me. And what I know for, for us today is some of us, you need to hear your heavenly father say, Listen to me. Nothing you have done will keep me from taking you in. I love you because I made you and because you are mine. I don't love you because of the things that you've done. I love you because you're mine. You're my child. That's why I sent my son for you. Others of us need to hear the voice of the Father kind of look us in the eye and just say to us strongly, I don't love you because of all the good that you do. I don't love you because you have it all together. I don't love you because you never fail or make mistakes. I love you because I made you in your mind and I sent my son for you to rescue you. That's the story of Easter. Have you let those words hit you? Beyond just the ideas and the songs and the things, and, but if you let them go deep into your heart so that you feel the love of a father who says, I want to cover up your shame with something good. I want to put a ring on your finger that says you're mine. I want to clothe your feet and take care of your needs. And I want to kill the fatted calf and throw a party and celebrate because of you. You matter to God like that. That's what the story Jesus told is. That's what the cross is. The cross is somehow that that one death on the cross is applied to all of us. And so we all get invited in through the shed blood of Jesus and through his resurrection. Friends, grace is hard to receive. It's hard to accept. Sometimes we want to earn it. We want to repay it. We want to reciprocate it in some way that makes it not feel like grace, but we can't. I was talking with a friend this week and she said, my church has loved me so much and given me so much grace, it's hard for me to come in. And what I realized in that is it's, she was struggling with this whole idea of grace. What does it look like to really believe? Not just that they've given me something, but that they value me so deeply that I want to be there 
because I see myself as part of the family. I see myself as treasured. God doesn't invite you in to tolerate you. God invites you in because he loves you. As a, as a good father loves a son or daughter, let that rest on you this Easter. Let that be the thing that you hold on to, the thing that gives you hope. The resurrection of Jesus says that God can bring resolution to all those broken places in our life. D.A. Carson once quipped, he said, I'm not suffering from anything a good resurrection can't take care of. Jesus tells us that the love of the Father invites you to come home and that one day he's gonna take care of all of our needs. And so we look to that day and we hope that we rest knowing it is finished on the cross and the empty tomb proclaims his love forever for us. Let me pray for us. Father, Jesus' new life means there can be new life for each of us as well. Would you help us to trust it? Would you help us to believe it to be true? Father, for those who are here who doubt, God, would even now, you just, would your spirit blow those clouds of doubt away? That they might rest in your grace and your goodness. Father, for those of us who know you but have wandered away, would you invite us to remember your grace and your goodness that we might come home? Father, help us to rest in who you are in the grace of your son and to be renewed by your spirit even now. Amen.